This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Veterans Affairs Department received a $10.5 million infusion to modernize its identity management platform. Just don't call it an award or a loan. The Federal Chief Information Officer, Claire Marta Morano, says it was an investment by the Technology Modernization Fund Board. Marta Morana and Raylene Young, the executive director of the TMF Program Management Office at GSA, tell executive editor Jason Miller about why VA's proposal stood out and how the TMF itself continues to evolve. What's exciting to me about VA is I spent some time over at VA several years ago, and this is a continuation of their digital modernization journey. And, you know, veterans need to access digital services across the VA. And oftentimes it's confusing and frustrating because they have multiple usernames and sign-in options and passwords. And so the investment that we're making in VA to actually modernize these services is going to help veterans have a seamless and secure access to the benefits that they earned, uh, which we're really excited about. And one of the things about that multiple usernames, passwords, that's that's not a new problem. It's I think it's been going on for, for years, not just at VA, but across government. Do you see this as, we'll use the dirty word pilot program for how agencies can maybe use what VA is learning and, and expand it? I know login.gov is not new. There's something like, if I correct me wrong, 30 agencies maybe using it or, or so. There's a lot of folks already using it. The critical thing to remember about identity in general is It has to be safe and secure and providing in our lives using private sector technology, we are used to simple and seamless interactions, right? I can log into Grubhub, I can do multiple things and utilize some of the technology available on my devices or have a a simple um, experience. It isn't that way in a lot of federal enterprises, right? We can't transit from agency to agency and have that same identity move with us. So part of the opportunity is in agencies that have multiple identity systems, starting there and making those seamless, safe, and secure, we know that we can then build on those lessons learned and actually start to have them help us as we transit across agencies. Raylene, let me ask you to jump in on this as well, because one of the things about the VA decision, folks could look at it and go, well, they just had that big brouhaha with ID.me, but we know that these this, this goes through the process, the board, this is not a, a quick and dirty, right? This takes a while. So maybe just give me a sense more broadly about the what you're seeing around ID, identity authentication, and, and how that's important from the board's perspective, from the program management office as one of those things that are uh, important to all agencies. Yeah. And, and I want to talk about, you know, echoing what Claire's saying around identity is just a, a fundamental part of delivering government services. So something we think a lot about is the power of shared services. So when you think about a shared service across government, you know, the first part of it is really building out that shared service, making sure that it works and can scale. So that's a great example of login.gov, which actually, you know, is used by over 40 million users across a number, a few dozen federal agencies. So there is that portion of time that's about investing in the shared service. And then there's that other side of the agency adoption of a shared service. And that's a great example of what the VA is doing. So you kind of have the two sides of the coin and together through developing the shared service and then agencies adopting the shared service, that's when you really get that government-wide benefit. And you can kind of have that 
build once and use many sort of leverage that you get out of every um, taxpayer dollar that goes into both sides. There's plenty of examples of shared services. Uh, there's, a, in fact, a, a big conference coming up uh, later this week around shared services. But I think these one-offs, if you will, not the big bang theories, but these one-offs really seem to be what the TMF board and others are really uh, looking at. Uh, Claire, maybe offer a little bit about what stood out to you about the VA proposal. I know you've gotten hundreds of proposals. What about this was so attractive to the board? I think the most critical thing to me about this was the agency's capability development internally, right? They were ready to do this work. They have been working for multiple years on this. And with each of these TMF investments, the agency's learnings are then turned into playbooks that we can scale across government. So it's a really unique superpower of the TMF. It serves as a catalyst to ensure that other agencies don't have to begin with a blank sheet of paper, that they can you know, learn from these um, opportunities and really, again, we can scale this across governments. Claire, maybe also offer a little bit of insights into the board's efforts. One of the things that I've heard, a little bit of frustration growing among CIOs, among Capitol Hill for kind of how long this decision process for the awards take. Can you offer some, you hear the fact that it's just taking longer than maybe most people hope, but what you're doing about it as well? When we issued the repayment guidance that came out in May and we had a June deadline for submissions, and that's to Raylene just gave you the numbers, there were extraordinary over 130 submissions. We did see that the quality of the proposals was not really where it needed to be. Being stewards of this billion dollars of American Rescue Plan money and the money that was appropriated to TMF, it's really important that we make sure that the investments have a chance of delivering impact and can be scaled across government. So how we've dealt with this, and um, again, Raylene touched on this a little bit, we kind of went from a 1.0 model that was in existence for three and a half years and did those 11 investments to a 2.0 model. And our 2.0 model puts technologists at the front end of the um, investment review process and partnering with the board. So the technologists are ensuring that these proposals are really worthy from a technical perspective of the investment, that they're going in the right strategic direction, that they're utilizing best practices, that the teams are capable of actually delivering, that they have acquisition vehicles in place, right? All of the fundamentals that are needed for an investment, not only to get up and running, but to be capable of delivering the impact for the mission or for the customers. So we've really been able to see agencies making some internal investments, like doing an MVP, doing some rapid prototyping, then coming to us and saying, we, we have these key learnings. Now we need to actually accelerate our IT modernization or you know, movement to the cloud or zero trust. And that makes it a lot easier for the board to make an investment decision because there's a proven model at an agency. And at that point, we are really able to make sure that the concept works, that the funding is going to be utilized and will have the greatest impact for the greatest chance of success. In many ways, what you described, however, is very similar to 1.0, right? You were making sure that folks had the 
CIO, the CFO acquisition all lined up. You would make sure that this was not a brand new startup. This was something used to accelerate. So would you say the biggest difference in the 2.0 model beyond the numbers is is what then? The, the fact that some agencies are coming with that rapid prototype or MVP, or, or is there something else that you'd point to to say, this is really the, the main difference between what you described in 1.0 and, and, and still remains in 2.0 and the 2.0 model? I think the... 1.0 model was very well understood. It did require that alignment with a CFO, a CIO, and the procurement executive at an agency. When we announced the payment flexibility, it was a rush for many agencies to submit, thinking that there wouldn't be the rigor that this was just such an enormous amount of money that we would just be fluidly handing out this money. And we really felt such an enormous sense of responsibility to be good stewards. These are taxpayer dollars. Claire Marta Morana is the federal chief information officer and Raylene Young, the executive director of the TMF program management office at the General Services Administration. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature. <laughs> 